Welcome to the Denver Community Church Teaching Podcast. We're so glad that you're joining us today from wherever you are. Whether you attend one of our Denver locations or listen online, our hope is to explore and participate in the life of Jesus so that we can be a healing presence in our world. As you listen to this teaching, allow it to begin a conversation between you and God, you and the Bible, and you and your community. If you have any questions about DCC or this teaching, you can email us at info at denverchurch.org. And if you'd like to financially support our community and beyond as we set aside 20% of every dollar given to support our partners locally and around the globe, you can text the words Denver Church to 77977. That's Denver Church to 77977. Thank you for joining us today. Well, hello. Privilege today of welcoming, and for those of you who don't know, to introduce to you Dave Meserve, who is a friend personally and a longtime friend of DCC's. Um, I'll just tell you a little bit about him. Dave has been a part of Denver's faith community for over 30 years, and in fact, he had two stints of working at the church who occupied this building before us. So he would say this is still his favorite sacred space in the city. He's the founder of Urban Sky, a nonprofit umbrella for faith entrepreneurs where he writes, mentors, and teaches. He currently spends half of his week with Volunteers of America, raising awareness around issues of moral distress. And for fun, earlier this month, he started an LLC called Awkward Faith Publishing. Lastly, he wanted to mention that he is a longtime KU Jayhawk fan. It's shallow, I know, but there you have it. And I'll say one more thing, and I'll, I'll hand it over to Dave. Um, you know, my husband and I moved to Denver about 18 years ago for a ministry gig, and I remember very quickly coming into awareness of Dave Meserve and aware of his presence as, as a faith leader in the city and have always looked to him as someone who I wanted to be more like, and I hate to say it, but a lot of times with faith leaders, that's not what I've been able to say, um, but Dave is super whimsical and creative, and he's just a good guy. And I kind of laughed this morning when he sent me a text letting me know he's going to be a few minutes late because he was riding a scooter. He and his wife have grown kids, and they both have a scooter. So, <laughs> welcome, Dave. Everybody should try to be like Dave. Yeah. <laughs> Thank, Thank you, you. Becca. It is my favorite sacred space here. I love this space. I worked at the church that sold this space to you and uh, was on this stage when we invited different churches and pastors to come and consider buying this space. And I still have this uh, memory of, uh, I know it was Michael and I know John, I'm not sure who else was here, but just on this stage, looking out with no one there and imagining you. And it came to be. So I, I was very happy that that happened. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall be shown mercy. It's the fifth of eight Beatitudes, and we, you are in the middle of a series on the Beatitudes, which is a perfect series for Lent, of which we are just over halfway through. And I'm going to come back to the Beatitudes, but I'd like us to take a little bit broader view of mercy. And I'm going to start with the definition um, because I'm a child of the Enlightenment, and that's what we do. We like to define things. It, it did occur to me that the Bible never defines mercy. It doesn't really need to. And, and you don't need it in a sense of if you are shown mercy, you know it. That's kind of how it works. But um, I'm going to define it, but I'm stealing it from a, a writer I like named Anne Lamott. Some of you have written 
read her. And this is what she said, three things about mercy. This kind of carry us some this morning. She says, mercy is radical kindness, number one. Mercy is offering or being offered aid in desperate straits, two. And third, mercy is not deserved. So we're going to come back uh, and, and kind of look at all that. But those three things are interesting to me. Mercy is a radical kindness, and it's for people in desperation. Um, we, it's very, there's a kin between mercy and compassion. We, we are compassionate about all kinds of things, but mercy is really reserved for those who are desperate. Uh, people in places where they do not have the resources to get out of the place that they are in. And the only way out is for aid to come, someone else to come and help them get out of it. That, that means mercy could be in play. And then the third thing is, you may feel like it's deserved or not, but it's really, by definition, not deserved. So with that, we're going to explore just three uh, arenas to help us understand mercy this morning. The first is a Jewish understanding, really a Hebrew understanding, as we can find it from our Old Testament scriptures of mercy, what Jesus brought to the table around mercy, and then we'll end with what the church, uh, what we consider and think about with mercy. So I have some art uh, that I want to show you, and we're going to start with one. Um, I really have come to appreciate contemporary art. Um, there it is. So um, we're going to begin and end with this a particular artist. His name is Alexander Sipkov. He's Russian. Um, which is interesting uh, given our world. He's a young man, and he honors the tradition of iconography, where you make icons, because he's part of that oldest tradition, the Orthodox Church. But what uh, Alexander, and apparently there's a movement uh, in those, that part of the world, to take icons, which have rich symbolic uh, and literal uh, meaning for the church, and getting them outside the church and out uh, into areas that normally you might not think of them. So I love this one. Uh, so this is an icon of Christ. And it's also graffiti. I'm kind of a sucker for street art. He calls himself an iconographitiist <laughs> or something like that. Now, when I've been kind of meditating on this, I, I love the art, but at the same time, there's meaning in this image. You have Christ on a wall. It's a retaining wall. It's a dam, and it's holding back waters. And when it comes to mercy, mercy, again, is optional or is required when there is something that is threatening you. It could be external, debt, addiction, whatever, persecution. It could be internal, your own uh, out of a relationship with others or God. But there's a threat coming, and what mercy does is it stands between you and that threat. This is what one of the things that Jesus says that he will do. Um, and so for me, I'm going to help us carry this image throughout our morning. Uh, when we talk about needing mercy, we tend to talk about things like I'm in over my head, I'm drowning, um, I'm, I'm treading water. So keep that in mind uh, as we go on. And now let's talk about the Jewish understanding of mercy um, as, as we can talk about it. So for the Jewish community, and I'm going to go back to the, the Hebrew community, the Hebrews' mercy was central to their very identity of who they were. And it's central because of the defining story of the Hebrew people, which is this. Another artist, um, contemporary artist, I wanted a Jewish artist. I found this. His name is Richard McBee, which doesn't sound Jewish at all, but trust me, he's Jewish. 
Um, and this is, of course, a picture of the Exodus. This is the defining moment for the Hebrew people. They were slaves in Egypt for 400 years. And it says that God heard their cries and he came and he provided a way out of a situation in which they had no resources to do this on their own. And he dries up the land, as you know, and he holds the waters back and he allows all these perhaps a million and a half people to travel through. And you see in the back that brightness that is a manifestation of God, described as a pillar of fire, and it's standing between them as they're walking through and the Egyptian army behind them, threatening to kill them. So this is mercy, and when the Hebrews would think about who they were, this is what they would think of. It defines them as a people. They were a people only because of the mercy of God. They would also look at mercy as being um, an attribute that the source of mercy is God himself. That's where mercy comes from. In almost all of the Old Testament descriptions and uses of mercy, God is the source. Uh, and the last thing that we need to remember, and this is something very hard for me and likely for you, is that the Hebrews and the Jewish community for all these millennium take a very long view of mercy. They were in bondage. They were drowning. They ran over their head with no resources for 400 years. And then God showed them mercy and brought them out. And that's something that's hard for, for me and maybe hard for you. So mercy is a defining characteristic of the Jewish people. And God, um, when he wants to reveal himself, also describes himself using the word mercy. Um, there's a, in just a moment, I want to show you a description of God. It's a fourfold description of God. It may be the most, I don't know, important, but uh, the most used description that God uses of himself. It's used a dozen times in the Old Testament, and this is going to be the first in instance. Uh, and what had happened is that God arrived, and the people didn't really know God, these Hebrew people. They, um, they inherited a faith from the patriarchs. But um, it had been a long time. Um, and so when God wanted to first initiate, he meets, of course, with just a representative. He meets with Moses. And you remember the burning bush incident. And um, talks, basically, Moses, you're the man. And he says, I'm not the man. He says, you're the man. I'm not the man. And he said, okay, I'll be the man. But if I'm going to go and do this, who are you? What's your name? And that was kind of the beginning of a more intimate relationship. This is how it starts. What's your name? And Jesus says, well, my name's Yahweh. And that began it. When they get through the waters and they began to go out and heading toward the promised land, now there's a new stage of the relationship. And the Lord wants to seal this with a, a more formality, a, a covenant. And so he's going to make a covenant with Moses. And at first he just said, now you know my name. Now I want to tell you who I am. And this is very important. I'm going to tell you who I am. And they have a whole, in Exodus 34, this whole beautiful ceremony around it. Um, but, but I want to pause for a moment and just think about how important it is when you are asked to describe yourself in a situation that's really important that you communicate it well. Because up to this point, all they knew was God is this awesome God who comes in a pillar of fire and clears out the water. But God wants to reveal more of himself. And I got thinking about this idea of re revealing yourself in important situations in our life. Like, when are you asked to describe yourself? And the two that I came up with are job interviews and dating apps. 
And, and neither of those are, are you completely honest, probably, but those are the two times, right? You describe yourself. We've all been in job interviews. Well, I'm a hard worker and I'm a you know, team player, whatever, whatever. And now the dating app is really interesting to me, and you'll be happy to know with my wife of 36 years here that I've never used one personally, but my kids have. I have adult kids, and so you know, I'll live my life through them. And I got permission from my oldest, Cece, to tell this. I always thought that's a great little picture for me. Uh, my, my daughter, she um, uh, had, was dating a guy, and that ended, and so she was in that state, and so her friends decided that she needs to get back out there, whatever you say. Get back out there, and you need to get on Tinder, and my daughter didn't want to get on Tinder, and in my daughter's words, she got bullied into it right, by her friends. You ever been bullied into Tinder? So she goes, okay, and so she, you know, you, you find a picture or however it works, and so you have a picture, and then you have this profile that you write. Now, my daughter's a writer, and, and, and I remember what she, the, the part of what she wrote. So she wrote whatever she wanted to communicate. Like, this is, I'm leading with this. But the last part of her profile was this. If you want to find me, I'm the girl in the corner wearing roller skates and an eye patch. I think that's, <laughs> thank you. I think that's hilarious. I go, what a great thing, what a way to kind of connect because it'd be a certain kind of guy that would like get that and want that. So I was kind of curious about it because I wondered, uh, you know, Tinder, that's the swipe, right? <laughs> you swipe on Tinder, obviously I'm out of it on, on the dating apps. So, so you, you get yourself out there and people can respond with a swipe. And I'm wondering of all the guys that swiped, and I don't know how many there are. I, I have no idea. She's really cute. Like a thousand? Is that too many? We'll say a couple dozen. So all the guys that swiped, I, I said, Cece, so of all the guys that swiped to connect with you, how many of them mentioned the eye patch? And, and, and what do you think? If you guessed zero, you would be correct. Not one of them even read the profile. They're just looking at the picture, Right? Now, I'm afraid we do that with God, and I think the Hebrews and all of us get, can fall in that and go, oh, I like the God that got us through, you know, he's the one that all the power and all the fire and all of that, but God says, no, if you want to know me, let me tell you my profile. So he and Moses, and it's, it's kind of a, it's, it's almost like a marriage moment, and he describes himself, and this is how he describes himself. Again, this is, dominates the Old Testament view of this. He's speaking the third person, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. When God wants to describe himself to Moses, a representative of all his people, first thing I want you to know about me is I'm merciful. I don't know if you've ever heard the line, oh, you know, God of the Old Testament is God of anger and the God of the New Testament is God of love. That's not true at all. The first thing God presents himself with is, I'm a God of mercy. I'm a God of mercy. And this is what he, he, he keeps talking about. First time mercy is used in the Bible is here. And by the way, the, the root, Hebrew root of the word mercy or merciful is the same root for womb. It's this warm, beautiful word. And that's how God, that's, his, that's what he leads with. We also learn here, or you get a picture that mercy doesn't like to live alone. Mercy has friends. Mercy and graciousness in the New Testament, mercy and grace, mercy and justice, and we'll touch on that later. So this is how God presents himself, and this is what the Hebrew people knew. 
Um, my daughter, by the way, she didn't find anybody on Tinder, um, but she met a guy, a guy that she knew, and they began to date, and, um, and, and they're getting married. We're very excited, our first wedding in the fall. But it always gets applause. Yes, way to go, Cece. Um, but here's the thing, that the reason Brian, Brian saw something in her that the swiping guys did not. And basically what Brian says, he pursued her, he says, you had me at eye patch. Right? I get you. And this is what God is saying to the Hebrews and I think to us. If you want to know me, if you want to get me, oh, you had me at mercy. Because that's who God is. That's what he leads with. So Jesus is going to take this. And Jesus is going to um, speak to this. And, and our scenario is the Beatitudes, the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. Obviously, this very famous sermon. And who's in the audience? Well, it's Jewish. It's a Jewish audience. And so they'd be carrying in this sense of mercy going, oh, that defines us as a people. God's the source of, of mercy. Um, and, and, and we want it. So that's who was sitting there when he did the Sermon on the Mount. Um, in fact, let me just show you a picture. This is quick. Uh, Michael, has, I don't know if he's still there, and, and some of your friends from DCC are in Israel. So I went, and Sherry and I took this picture. Uh, this is traditionally where Jesus did the Sermon on the Mount. Um, it's really got a beautiful view. If you could see the, uh, the Sea of Galilee, it's not a sea. It's just a lake. But anyway, you get this beautiful view, but the terrain is not very beautiful. It's kind of rocky and dusty, and, and, and it struck me when we were there and we read through the whole sermon is a perfect place for the Beatitudes, this, this picture of beauty, and yet you're sitting in a place that's not all that beautiful. It's a very real-world thing that he comes to, a, and he tells us about the Beatitudes. And the Beatitudes kick off the Sermon on the Mount. They're kind of a gateway to the kingdom, these eight Beatitudes. Like, if you don't get it, you're going to miss the kingdom, um, and they, they aren't just these individual um, attributes either. Like, oh, yeah, um, you know, Becca is pure of heart and uh, Amanda is, um, you know, poor in spirit and all of that. It's really a composite picture. So it's not like you're picking and choosing, but it kind of rounds out this beautiful picture of a person, but also a people. This is what communities of faith are to be like. They are to embody all of this, this kind of composite uh, picture of that. Uh, and that the blessing is not just to the Beatitude people, but it's through the Beatitude people that blessing comes. Um, now let me just show you the, the text itself. And again, very simple, blessed are the merciful for they shall be shown mercy. You know, one of the things uh, is that this is a reciprocal language, right? It, it's conditional. And I've been in church world a long time, and we love to talk about the unconditional love of God, which is, of course, true. But in any relationship, there's also conditions. doesn't mean it's not unconditional love, but there's a condition. He says, if you want to be shown mercy, be merciful. And if you're merciful, you get to be shown mercy. They go hand in hand. In this case, it is you show it so that you can know it. In other places, Jesus says you know it because it's been shown to you. So there's a reciprocal nature that I think kind of helps drive us a little bit. Now, the Hebrews, the Jewish audience would have known that because way back when, uh, as they go back to that formative story of the Exodus, 
God said over and over in many cases, be kind to the foreigner who lives among you because you were foreigners in Egypt. Be kind to the strangers among you because you were strangers in Egypt. So they got that, but Jesus is going to take that. And as you, if you're familiar with the Sermon on the Mount, what he does is he takes this, these traditions and the laws of the Jewish people, the laws of Moses, and he says, I didn't come to tear them up or, or get rid of them. I've come to fulfill them. I'm come to restore what they, what they are meant to mean. I, I'm, I'm taking it to, to a different level. And that's what he's going to do with mercy. Um, because now he's going to say, he's going to make a couple shifts when it comes to mercy. One, he becomes a source of mercy. Like the Hebrews would look to God as the source of mercy. Now you read the Gospels, you don't have to go too far when you bump up against someone crying out, Lord, have mercy on me. Lord, have mercy on us. Lord, have mercy on on my daughter who's got a demon. Lord, I have mercy on my son. He he has epilepsy or something. He throws himself in the fire. And, And in every case, God has mercy. Jesus has mercy. So he becomes the source of mercy. But this whole idea of who really are the ones who show mercy and who are really the ones that that we should be showing mercy to, now that's going to be a little shift for the Jewish community, but an important one. All right, so when Jesus, um, when he wants to come to mercy, we'll go to our, our, now this isn't contemporary art, but it's one of my favorite artists. Uh, This would be our friend Van Gogh. There he is. So when Jesus, he doesn't define mercy, but when he wants to talk about mercy, he tells a story. And this is, of course, the parable of the Good Samaritan, maybe the most famous parable of all. So the setting is, I'll remind you, the setting is an expert of the Jewish law comes to him and says, Rabbi, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus asks him, well, you know the scriptures. You're you're the expert. What What does it say? And he says, well, you should love God with everything, heart, soul, mind, strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said, that's it. Do that and live. And he was going to leave it at that. But it was a lawyer, and he just couldn't leave it at that. And it says in the text that he wanted to justify himself. He really wanted to look good because he's feeling like, oh, yeah, I I know this. And, And so my hunch was this lawyer says when it comes to loving your neighbor that he was kind of above the the average when it came to that. And so he says, well, who is my neighbor? Appearing that he thinks he's going to look good. And Jesus does what Jesus does and almost never answers a question straight. Almost never. And so he says, who is my neighbor? And Jesus says, well, there was a man going down from Jericho. Tells a story, and it's this story. And it's a man that comes down, he gets robbed and beaten, and, uh, and he is desperate. And uh, he is off the side of the road. And, of course, two of the heroes of their population, a priest and a Levite, the people that you would think would help someone in need, they pass by on the other side for their own really probably religious reasons, ironically and sadly. And they go through. And then another character came who is a Samaritan. The Samaritans for the Jewish population were the worst of the worst. They were the half-breeds. They were kind of Jewish, but not. They intermarried. They did all the wrong things. They didn't follow all the rules. They didn't have the whole scriptures. They only took a portion of them. And they were despicable. They despised this race of people that was living uh, there in Palestine. And Jesus made a Samaritan the hero of the story. And it says he came and he saw the man and he went over um, and, and took him and he put him on his donkey and he 
took him uh, to an inn and he bandaged him up and he, he provided healing for this man and he made arrangements for the man to stay and the man journeyed, came back and said, I'll cover all of his expenses. And, and you get this picture of mercy, right? That mercy is not, um, you don't just think mercifully, you act mercifully. That's the only way that it happens. And you get this sense that mercy is to heal, is, is to to be very practical in it, and to sacrifice. I mean, these are all these concepts of mercy. And so Jesus tells the story, and then he puts the question back to the expert and said, okay, expert of the law, who's, who's the neighbor? And he had to say, the one who showed him mercy. And then Jesus said to him and everyone listening, go and live like that, do likewise. But the real shocker was not that someone got mercy. The real shocker was who, the, who was the hero of the story, and it was someone that you wouldn't expect because what Jesus did is he took this very Jewish-centered world and said, God came for everybody, starting with you, but it's meant to be for everyone. Um, oh, uh, I wanted to say this. So one of the things that Jesus does is, is when it comes to who is the recipient of mercy, Jesus doubles down. Uh, this is in Luke's version of the Sermon on the Mount, and he's talking about... Um, who is the recipient of mercy? And let's show this. So he says, love your enemies. So what Jesus does is says, don't just be good to your own people. You be good to those who are, quote, enemies. And, 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 I, and I'm reading the Psalms right now, and David talks about enemies. I'm like, who are my enemies? I don't know. Like, who would be in the ditch that you would go, yeah, I'm going to go on the other side? Is it someone in an Antifa shirt? And you're like, I don't think so. Is it somebody in a, that iconic red uh, baseball hat with MAGA on it? I don't think so. So who are your enemies? I think we have people that qualify for that. But love your enemies, and how do you love them? You do good for them. And then I love that he says you lend them without expecting return. Gets very practical, doesn't it? You want to love people? Well, you lend and don't expect anything to go back. In the Jewish system, in the law of Moses, you would lend among your people without interest. That was one of the laws, which is very radical. And this is incredibly radical. And then he says, your reward will be great if you do this. You will be children of the Most High because he is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Again, not deserved. Mercy is not deserved. You know, stories of mercy... Again, the Good Samaritan, the reason it's the most popular story, that and the prodigal son, is, is that stories of mercy just move us. I mean, because hopefully, I think, we all have some sense of being or knowing what it's like to be in a, a desperate situation where your resources are not enough to get you out. And when someone comes in and, and, uh, and puts that barrier up between you and that threat, it's the most beautiful thing in the world. Um, I heard a new one from me. It was, uh, I, I get to every Thursday morning, I get to eat with a bunch of 20-somethings, and we have breakfast together, and we were um, doing stories that move us. And Emma Kate, one of the gals, uh, told the story. She had heard a man named Anthony Ray Hinton and read his book. He had come to Denver, and she heard him tell his story. Um, by the way, Anthony uh, Ray Hinton is featured in the movie, Just in the book, Just Mercy. So he goes by Ray, and Ray was um, falsely imprisoned for a double murder for 30 years on death row in the South. Um, and this is, um, we listened to an interview of him as part of this. And he's the most merciful man 
I, I may have ever heard. Just this beautiful man, Ray, 30 years. But the story he told that I think was among the most moving, he, his mother was a, a woman of, of faith, very strong faith, and he, he carried that into prison. And it took him a while, a number of years, before he kind of wanted to make it his own. But he's isolated in, in the sense that he has his own cell. Well, he gets a, not a cellmate, but a guy next to him. And um, they start to eventually start to talk. And again, kind of like Moses and God, hey, what's your name? name is Henry, and they begin to talk a little bit without ever seeing each other. Well, um, Anthony Ray Hitchin is a, a black man in the South, and uh, Henry's a white guy. And, and in fact, what he finds out is that Henry's dad was a grand wizard in the KKK. Henry is on death row because he, he helped murder two black boys. And so Ray's friends in the prison, they come to him saying, what are you doing talking to Henry? You got nothing about that. Well, Ray, Ray was trying to figure this out. So that when they had their talks, Ray would say, he would say, Henry, why do you hate me? And, and, Henry, and Henry would say, I, he says, I, you know, I, I just was raised to, to hate black people. And he goes, no, 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 why do you hate me? He goes, well, you know, the black people, he goes, Ray, why do you hate me? And he goes, or Henry, why do you hate me? And he goes, Ray, I don't even know you. And Ray said, exactly. And they got to know each other, and they became friends. And one time, uh, the, his father, Henry's father, came, still full of bile and hate comes. And uh, he breaks protocol, Henry does, and invites Ray over to his table while they eat to meet his father, which didn't go well. But, but Henry did it. Uh, interestingly to me, anyway, his father's going to die during that visit in the courtyard. And then his mother's going to come later, uh, full of hate and rage against black people. She's going to die there too. And so Henry's on death row for this, but there comes a time, it was time for him to be executed. And when you're executed in this system, you get to have one person to be there. He didn't have any family. Yes, Ray. And they had their last meal together um, at a stake, and, uh, which they never got. And, and Ray was there at the end. And what a beautiful story of mercy by Ray. And maybe you, can, you could look that up and read about it. Because they change people, mercies, stories of mercy. And uh, they change us. And so I want to end by talking about the church and mercy. Because Jesus took this, he showed it, he lived it. Um, and now it's important for us to think, well, what does mercy look like, especially in our world today? Now, one of the realities of our world, I've already alluded to it, and I'm going to show you a picture of, um, of the Ukraine. So on the left there is, is another young artist who's Ukrainian. Her name is um, Natalia. And Natalia um, is part of a movement. In fact, this piece, which is a, a, a kind of an icon of uh, the crucifix, is in, uh, or at least it was in Lviv, where she lives. And in Lviv, there's a contemporary sacred art gallery of which she is a part. Um, and and I, I hope it's under a bunker right now because it's getting shelled probably as we, we talk. Now, on the right there is maybe you've seen this one too. This is um, a citizen in Lviv, a Ukrainian, uh, who's welding together these I-beams. And you know what they're for? They're to help prevent tanks from coming. So they take these pieces. And for me, it looked like a three-dimensional cross. And so you have Jesus saying, I'm, I'm here uh, for mercy, 
And you have these Ukrainians trying to keep tanks out. So my question is, how do you pray for all of this? I think that's an interesting thing because from here, I mean, we can give to certain things. I mean, but the church is also called to pray. How do you pray for this? A week ago, I was at, it was a little house concert, and it was a, a faith community, and the guy, my friend, who was up there um, to kind of introduce the artist and talk about, he says, hey, we can't do this without talking about, you know, just Ukraine. He says, just let's, let's pray for Ukraine, and we all bow, and this is all he said, Lord, have mercy. That was it, and we all got it, right? So we pray for mercy for our Ukrainian um, brothers and sisters. But is that, that's not all I've been praying. Again, mercy has friends, and one of the friends is uh, justice. And so I've been praying in some new ways <laughs> for, uh, for this. I think I mentioned I'm reading through the Psalms with some friends at, at work, and we're, we're starting at one and going through, and so we're almost all in Psalms of David. We're into the 40s now. And one of the things I note about David, he prays for mercy all the time. The king of Israel, he's always praying for mercy. God, have mercy on me, have mercy on us. But he has other kinds of prayers. Uh, um, Some of them songs, uh, the theological term is imprecatory psalms. Imprecatory psalms is basically when the psalmist, in this case David, prays for God to bring the thunder down, right? That he says, God, come and show up. Bring the thunder on my enemies. Bring the thunder on your enemies, and it's all through the Psalms. Like one of them um, is, let's see. Uh, oh, I lost it. Okay, so he says, he's praying. He goes, your king trusts in the Lord. Okay, so don't get me wrong, Lord. I, I trust in you, but your hand's going to lay hold of your enemies. Your right hand's going to seize them. You're going to appear to battle. You're going to burn them up like a f- blazing furnace. And he goes on describing, he says, you're going to line them up, have them face away from you, and you're going to Shoot him in the back with a bow and arrow. These are our hymn book of the faith, right? And I relate to that. And maybe you do too. So I want to pray for mercy, but I also want God to bring the thunder. Now, one of the things about reading these psalms, they're so honest, that they almost all end with a sense of, but God, I trust you. I trust you with this. In fact, one, and I love this, with Psalm 27 ends this way. He's kind of going through the same kind of gyration of mercy and and justice and all of this stuff. And he says, be strong, take heart, and wait for the Lord. Because that's what the Hebrews did. Long suffering. Long suffering. They waited on the Lord. and, And they needed to wait on the Lord. So in the Psalms... Do you pray for mercy or justice? You pray for both because the Psalms give us both. So does the cross of Jesus. Gives us both. The cross brings the thunder. The cross of Jesus, when he died and was resurrection, he brought the thunder. It was necessary because we live in a world where evil is present. And the cross, we're told, is how God wanted to deal with evil. And he brought the thunder. He just didn't bring the thunder the way I want to bring the thunder because I love revenge movies. <laughs> Don't you? He loves revenge movies. I've seen the movie Taken a bunch of times. I'm a little sick that way, but I love it. I don't know there's something about it. I know there's a justice piece, but there's also this, ugh, pay him back. And, and that's what happened at the cross. It somehow brought the thunder and dealt with evil. 
but just not in the ultimate way yet. But that's part of what we wait for, that one day God will do whatever God will do. He says, vengeance is mine, not yours. And I think it's because we're not very good at it, and he's really good at it. And I don't know what vengeance is going to look like, but that's what he's going to do. Um, and the world, the war that we really fight, as Paul writes about, is not against flesh and blood. So when I think about Putin, I pray against Putin a lot these days. I read the Psalms, and I just go for his efforts um, I don't want to tell you all my prayers because I, I don't know. They're not very nice. But I don't think this is a time for really nice prayers. I pray for that, and I pray for mercy uh, for the people. Because there are rulers, Paul writes, rulers of darkness in this age, spiritual forces of evil that aren't flesh and blood. There's something else. Paul kind of groups them into this powers and authority um, which would make a great sermon at another time. And so our battle becomes this with this systemic evil which infiltrates every system, even systems that start out good, and corrupts them and, and steers them toward violence and self-destruction. Every one of them. And what Jesus did on the cross, we are told, is that he dealt with that. In a, in a, he started something that's going to end uh, with a victory. It says that he, um, he unmasked evil, that one of the things the cross did is it made evil look like evil really does. It's kind of like what we're trying to do when Putin has tried to, he has lied to his people in order to stay in power and justify this war. And we're trying to convert, we're trying to get through those lies to something that's true. It says that's what Jesus did. He, he the cross unmasked the evil, and it says it disarmed these forces of darkness. It's like they had to lay their weapons down, but they're still playing. They're still fighting. And that's one of the things we do. So the cross did bring the thunder, and the cross also brought mercy. I have a final um, passage that we'll, we'll hit. Because ultimately, one of the things that's written about is that at the cross, the cross and the resurrection, um, it was not about revenge even as much as I might want it. Ultimately, it's about reconciliation. And what God says is God was pleased that what Jesus did with the cross and the resurrection has now reconciled all things to himself. I don't quite know what that means, but that's where we're headed. So now, this, this final, uh, the writer of Hebrews, so because of this, the cross is also a source of mercy. We have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, so we can approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. So that's what Jesus has done. He has become this high priest, and there's a passage in between that says, uh, you know, a high priest does. A high priest allows us access to God. God, uh, Jesus reversed that and said, I'm also going to come down and be one of you. And he empathizes with us. He knows what it's like to be us. Uh, and so he is merciful in that way. And we can depend on him to be there uh, in times of suffering. Um, one writer said this, it makes all the difference to know that there's someone screaming alongside us. And that's the point of the incarnation is now God came and screamed alongside us. But he also says stuff like this, that you may receive mercy and that's the last thing I want to say, is that um, you, you show mercy because you know mercy, and you know mercy because you show mercy. But do you know mercy? 
And this has been quite a journey for me the last month, thinking about how do I know mercy. But there is a great tradition of the faith that every one of us needs the mercy of God. It's not just that darkness is out there, and that's why Jesus had to die on the cross. It's that darkness also reigns in here. And so that's what we need to understand, that there's a piece of mercy there that we need. And, and this is my, probably my favorite way to think about the human condition and the need for mercy. It comes from the great theologian Steve Colbert. So when he was hosting the Oscars tonight, I can't wait, but when he was hosting the Emmys a few years ago, he started off, you remember this, with a prayer? <laughs> He's Catholic. I just love him. And the, so this is what he said with Hollywood there. The Hollywood prayer, he said this, Lord, thank you for giving us talent and beauty and that gaping hole inside each of us that craves love and will never be filled. Amen. <laughs> I love that. That's the human condition. It's not that we're the worst of people. It's, we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I get that. That's true. But it's that gaping hole that craves love, and we don't always do good things with that. In fact, we, we, we are bent toward not doing good things with that. And so we need the mercy of Jesus. And so the mercy of Christ coming and dying and raising again is to say, I, I feel that gaping hole, and I'm going to help you fill it too. Final image. Um, this is uh, that uh, Alexander... Uh, Tsipkov, uh, the Russian. So I love this one. This is an angel. I'm calling it an angel of mercy. He's holding an icon, um, uh, Greek letters uh, that stand for Jesus Christ, Jesu Christu. And, and he painted that in the basement of some building that's just full of rubble. And I thought that's a good picture of mercy for us, is that in the rubble, and I think of our dear Ukrainian brothers and sisters, and even in our own lives when we need mercy, it's offered to us, and we get, to, we get to receive it, and we also get to share it. A final quote from a, an ancient uh, kind of mystical writer named St. Teresa of Avila. You may have heard this before. Christ has no body now but yours. No hands, no feet on earth but yours. Yours are the eyes through which he looks compassion on the world. Yours are the feet for which he walks to do good. Yours are the hands through which he blesses all the world. Yours are the eyes, the feet, the hands. Yours are the body. Christ has no body on earth but yours. So Jesus came to bring mercy. And he came and does it through his body, which is us. So blessed are the merciful. They will be shown mercy. And blessed are us because we have been shown mercy which allows us to be merciful. Becca's going to join me up here now. And um, Hannah already led us in a, a beautiful liturgy around mercy. This one that's come, it's, a, it's an, I don't know how ancient it is, comes from an Episcopalian tradition called Prayers of the People for you Episcopalians. Um, but we just want to go through this, and um, I'm going to have you stand. And there, it is a call and response. Becca and I will lead you through these prayers of the people. Um, but the but if you pay attention to liturgy, there's so much liturgy about mercy. So your response is going to be, Lord, have mercy. For the peace from above, for the loving kindness of God, and for the salvation of our souls, let us pray to the Lord, Lord, Lord have, have mercy. mercy. For the peace of the world, for the welfare of the Holy Church of God, and for the unity of all peoples, let us pray for the Lord. Lord, Lord have, have mercy. mercy. For our president, for the leaders of the nations, and for all in authority, let us pray to the Lord. Lord, Lord have, have mercy. mercy. 
For the city in which we live and for every city and community and for those who live in them, let us pray to the Lord. Lord, Lord, have have mercy. mercy. For the good earth which God has given us and for the wisdom and will to conserve it, let us pray to the Lord. Lord, Lord, have have mercy. mercy. For the aged and infirmed, for the widowed and orphaned, for the sick and the suffering, let us pray to the Lord. Lord, have Have mercy. mercy. For the poor and the oppressed, for the unemployed and the destitute, for prisoners and captives, and for all who remember and care for them, let us pray to the Lord. Lord, Lord, have have mercy. For all who have died in the hope of the resurrection and for all the departed, let us pray to the Lord. Lord, Lord, have have mercy. For deliverance from all danger, violence, oppression, and degradation, let us pray to the Lord. Lord, Lord, have have mercy. For the release from shame and anxiety and the remission of sins, let us pray to the Lord. Lord, Lord, have have mercy. That we may end our lives in faith and hope without suffering and without reproach, let us pray to the Lord. Lord, Lord, have have mercy. Defend us, deliver us, and in your compassion protect us. In the communion of the saints, let us commend ourselves and one another to Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen.